1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, beginning to read at the 12th verse. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the organs in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single organ, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body which seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those parts of the body which we think less honorable we invest with the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so adjusted the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior part that there may be no discord in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Amen and amen. This morning I have felt led to speak about the Church, the Church Universal and the particular Church, the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown. And I do this for various reasons which I hope will become apparent. First of all, we are midway between Easter and Pentecost which is the day which traditionally we hold as the birthday of the Church. This year, this year it will be June 6th, 50 days after Easter. That's the time, you know, when the third person of the Trinity was revealed in a new and powerful way to people gathered together in a house in the upper room of Jerusalem and where they gathered together and joined themselves in a fellowship which was later called the Church. Another reason, we are presently engaged in two classes that are preparing people for membership, not only in the Church Universal, but in this particular Presbyterian Church. This morning I happen to be part-time in both classes. 
We have over 30 young people who have been working with Mr. Bruder since the first Sunday of September last year, who today sat before the Christian Education Committee and were examined on their knowledge of Bible and the Christian faith and theology and the history of the Church. Tonight they'll meet before the session. And as the Spirit leads them, however many of them feel that they are being called to be the ones who are to be a part of the Church today, they will be joining here, making public their confession on Pentecost Sunday. Also, the direction of Mrs. Kennedy's teaching and my own, we have over 20 adults who are presently engaged in the review of the Church. Many of them will be making profession for the first time of Christ as Lord and Savior when many of them will be coming also on Pentecost Sunday when we are hoping that more than 50 people will be joining the church and this particular church on that particular day. So it's only natural, you see, that we are thinking much about the church these days in these classes. And thirdly, what I think is most important, <laughs> though many of you have probably forgotten and do not realize it, nevertheless the fact still remains that today, to the very day and date, we are at the fifth anniversary of our centennial, which began with a worship service, one of four, on Sunday, May 16, 1971. The banquet was on May 13th. The actual celebration of our church's birthday is May 20th. But it was under the capable direction and leadership of Elder Howard Taylor that the committee and the Project 200 began the first of the four worship services five years ago today. Now that does not seem possible for many of us who were involved in it, but I must remind you that much has happened in those five years. We, we worship here more than 250 Sundays. Even I was surprised when we checked the records and found that since that Sunday, 404 people have joined the membership of this church. And though we have lost through death, transfer of letter, suspension and erasure, 314 people, we still have more people who have joined than have left. And in that time, we have baptized 101 babies. So you see, there are many of you who were not here when we celebrated the history that we have known now for 105 years. And because we are 105, I think it's right that we look to see if we're still alive. And that's really what I want us to do today. I think the Church errs when she does not evaluate from time to time whether or not she is alive. Because, you see, churches can be like people. Just because you are not dead, just because you are not dead does not necessarily mean that you are alive. I know some of you people, at least your mates and friends tell me so, that when you fall asleep, you fall dead to the world, and that's the way they quote it. 
It means their televisions are playing and, and stereos are playing. You are completely oblivious of anything that is going on, including your mate or your parent or your children calling you. This is true in the church. Sometimes Mr. Bruder and I are called to hospitals far too much more than we like, but nevertheless we compelled to go to some time stand or sit with you while we were looking over the life of a loved one who because of sickness or brain damage is very, very still. Oh, the body is breathing, but there are no other signs of life. The voice is stilled. Nothing but those deep, deep breaths, each one appearing as being the last. Now, that person is not dead, but you can't say that person is alive either. Same is true in a church. You see, you don't have to close the doors and you don't have to have vacant pews for the church to be dead. Oh, no. There are two basic ingredients that you have to have if there's going to be the church, nationally, internationally, or individually. One is the grace of God. The grace of God leading, directing, encouraging, and speaking. And the other is the response of people. Response of people who are obedient to the grace of God as they understand it. All you need for not to have a church is one of those two elements not present. And I don't care how many people are anxious to be followers of God if the grace of God is not leading directing there's no church and I don't care how hard the grace of God is working and bestowing by the power of his spirit upon people here on the earth if individuals do not respond there is no church and even God is living now keeping that in mind I have a little formula that you've heard part of it before but I'd like to remind you what I think a church, even when it's 105, needs to be alive. And that is, first of all, it needs to be aware. Aware of the grace of God. And aware of the power of the Spirit. And aware as to whether or not, individually, we are members of that church and obedient obedient to the leading of that spirit. I've had a wonderful week reviewing the most unique, creative brochure that Elder Jack Steffen made for the centennial. Listening to tapes of the services, and last night I went through the scrapbook of all the pictures. You know, you people have all changed. I've gotten younger, you've gotten older. But it's been wonderful reviewing, and really much happened that I had forgotten about. And I read again that, that history that was written by the late trustee Ray Nicholas, who brought to our attention what it was like over a hundred years ago in this part of the world. I was interested to read that those people, in my estimation, had an awareness an awareness that God was working in their lives. 
and they responded. Somewhere during the 1850s or the mid part of the 1800s, a group of people gathered together to worship in a yellow frame schoolhouse, which was then a part of the John E. Walt farm. That schoolhouse, the best we can recollect, probably stood where now the Richland Youth Foundation stands. And there, people in this community, farmers, went together to worship. And they did that, I guess, for several, several years. And then in 1867, they were led to believe that God was calling them to form a church. And they bought the piece of property where now this building now stands, and together with the cemetery. They purchased that land. And in the fall of 1867, history tells us that they arrived on this particular piece of geography with their tools and their horses, and they began to build a one-room church. The brick was actually made down on another part of John Ewalt's farm. It would be just to the west or the other side of what is now Route 8 and just north of the Gibsonia Road. In that field, the brick was made, hauled here, and those farmers, they began to build this building. And the original brick you can still see on the outside of this wall and the outside of that wall. In 1867, according to Ray Nicholas's report, there was no roof. They couldn't meet here. Only the snow was welcomed on Sundays and the other days of the week. And then following in that year, 1868, they finished the roof, and in July they dedicated this building to the glory of God, which now would just enclose this front section of the church. Things were a little different then. The preacher replaced the present choir. The pulpit was right over here in the midst of this middle window, and the front door was over here where now this window stands and the radiator wasn't there. The front door led right up to the cemetery. I don't know if there was any symbolism connected there, but that's how it stood. And there were double pews right down the middle, two side aisles and then side pews to the wall. And you left and entered by way of the cemetery remained this way for some time. They were supplied with pastors from the Crossroad Church there on the other side of Babcock Boulevard. And finally, in 1871, April of that year, they petitioned the Presbytery to organize their own church and congregation. And after much delay, but in May, exactly May 20th, 1871, with 58 members, <laughs> they organized, they incorporated, they were chartered as the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown. They had an awareness that God was calling them to do something. And one of the great things of the history of this church is it has developed from 1871 is that there has always been a group of people here who are aware or have been aware of the leading of God's Spirit. You know, there were lean days back in the 1930s and early 40s. Some of you were here then. 
But nevertheless, you comprised that remnant that tried to be aware of the fact that God was leading and speaking, and it was some of you who had the vision to be able to buy up more ground, build new buildings, and under my predecessor, Dr. Jim Little, under his great leadership, so many of these buildings were built to the place where we are now. Many of you joined during that time, and, and always there has been this awareness, and one of the things for which I've been thanking God all of this week is that still, even though some of you don't know it, there are many, many people who are aware of the leading of God's Spirit right here in this church. As late as last week, if I can believe my mail and the telephones, calls and and the comments that have made been made, many of you have felt the awareness of God as lately as last week, right here, speaking and leading and guiding. You have to be aware of God's Spirit and whether or not we are obedient to His grace. And, and you have to care as well as be aware. This is one of the things that I think we forget from time to time in our anxiousness to help other people, and that's very, very important. We must be in mission, but a church must also care about itself. And in my own estimation, I can be wrong. One of the reasons why many churches are in trouble is that they have not given enough care about themselves. But churches can't care if people don't care. See, to be a Christian and a churchman, you have to be somewhat self interested. I did not say selfish or self-centered, I said self-interested. I believe back at the time of Abram, the time of the Pentecost experience for the first time, the time when our forefathers founded this church, they were people who cared. And they cared just not about other people, but they cared about themselves. You know, if you lose pride in yourself, you can't have pride in much anybody or anyone else. I believe our forefathers, you see, whether in Jerusalem or in Bakerstown, they cared about their sin and wished to be delivered from the burden of sin. I believe that they cared whether or not they were living to the potential that God had placed within them, that they cared that they were instruments of his Holy Spirit, that they cared whether or not they were to live eternity and internally in heaven. They cared about their families, and then they began to care about other people. I personally believe that if you don't care about yourself, you can't care about other people. And I get that idea from Jesus, who says that you are to love other people as you love yourself. And if you don't love yourself, you can't love other people. These people cared. They cared. I think before you can really be a real missionary, you have to receive the mission of care for self. Before you can help those other people, you have to know that you've received something yourself because you've cared. And this church has cared. I love to believe that you people come here Sunday after Sunday, not just because it's the thing to do or because you're in a habit, I think the people listening in on radio don't do it just because it's something to do on Sunday morning between 11 or 12, but I actually believe it's because you care. You care what's going to happen to you. You care whether or not 
You are living up to the potential that is within you. You care about yourselves. And folks, you point out to me a church that is not vital today, and I'll point you out people who really don't care. <laughs> not what happens to other people, they don't even care what happens to themselves. And then when you care, after you've been made aware, then you can dare. Then you can dare to be somebody special. You know, and that's what it's all about, you know. We in the Christian faith have to be a little presumptuous. Yes. And, you know, that's sometimes why the leaders of our church and pastors and, and vital Christians get into trouble, because sometimes they do overstep their bounds. But, you see, you have to have that driving force which makes you look from time to time as being presumptuous. Otherwise, you are no different than anybody else. And one of the bright things that I see in the future of the church, nationally and individually, is that I think we are beginning to realize that we have to assume this position to which we have been called, not for privilege, but for responsibility. I don't think we can be quite as tolerant of other religions as we have been in the past. I think we're beginning to see that we've got to use the mandate and the authority that has been given to us. We can't be as liberal in accepting other religions as much as we have in the past. I really believe that. We can't be as tolerant as we might like with the Church of Jesus Christ because it's not ours. He's the head. We've got to realize we're in the world, not to become a part of the world, but we are to change the world. Elton Trueblood, that philosopher and, and leader of Christianity, in making a survey of vital congregations throughout America, said in a recent writing of his that he did not know of one vital congregation today, a congregation that's doing something that is not conscientiously and unapologetically Christ-centered. You know, and, and that's, I think, what we need to have. And you know, that's why I take my hat off to our forefathers. You know, this is known as the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown. That's a big, big mouthful. And many times I wish we were known just as the Bakerstown Presbyterian Church, but as long as I'm pastor of this church, I'll defend that title as long as I possibly can for one reason and only one. Because it reveals to me the daringness of our forefathers. Can you picture it? Fifty-eight people in one little room, a part of a village that wasn't much bigger, and they were presumptuous enough to think of themselves as the people of the first Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown. You see, they have a vision and a goal. Maybe we've lacked that daringness. Maybe we should be starting the second Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown. You see, they, they really thought, and God bless them for it, that they were somebody who had something to give to everyone. And I think in these days we need to get off of the defensive and a little more on the offensive. Quit apologizing 
and use the power that has been given to us. And when we do that, then I think we come to the fourth thing that I would like to mention, and that is we've got to share. Made aware, care, dare, and then we share. And of course, as soon as you mention that, you think, well, he's after money. Now, that's the cheapest thing that we have to share. And I'm very proud of this congregation. In the five years since our centennial, we've received in those offering baskets, strictly through the giving, almost three-quarters of a million dollars, $730,000 to be exact, not counting this morning's offering. Of that, $200,000 has been given to people and programs outside this church to help them. should be double that. We hope we're going to continue to give more to others than ourselves, but that's a pretty good record. But when I say that we must learn to share, I don't mean more money necessarily, though that's a part of it. But I think something that is far more valuable than money, we've got to share our time. Time at worship, time at study, time in mission. And we have to share even something that is far more precious and valuable than either time or money. That's ourselves, our feelings, our fears, our faith. We have to share with one another openly, become vulnerable, and it's dangerous, but it can be very powerful as well. Actually, what God is doing for us individually, and we build up the body that way. And believe me, ladies and gentlemen, I see this more now than I've ever seen it before in the history of this church. It's happening informally and formally, the old and with the young, people who are beginning to take seriously what it means to share their church by sharing themselves. That's one of the reasons I preach this sermon today. I leave this week leading a delegation to the General Assembly of our church. Appreciate the prayer of Mr. Bruder this morning for that 188th General Assembly. Like all General Assemblies, it's going to be difficult. But I just want you to know that as I go, and as I sit in those halls of judgment, and decisions are always difficult for me, they always have, I just want you to know I'm going to be thinking about you people back here. I preach this sermon as much for myself as I did for anyone else. I'm going to try to be aware of the leading of God's Spirit going to care and dare and hopefully share with my fellow commissioners from all over the United States. I've given much to this church through the staff, the sessions that you have given me, and I thank God for them. And unapologetically, I say, we have all given much, but we've received much too. And one of the great things that you have taught me is to be daring, is how to share is to care and hopefully to be aware. As I spend long hours with others in those halls of decision, I just want you to know I'll be thinking of you, thanking God for you and what God has taught me through you. God bless you. I miss you. And I love you.
Father, you've given us so much. Help us not to take for granted what our forefathers fought so hard to give us. Father, you're leading us now, and help us not to underestimate the power of your Spirit in our midst. Father, help us to be alive in this church as we realize we are individual members of her. And now may the grace, mercy, and peace of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all and with the church forever and ever.